And this morning, I want us to preach for a few moments on that thought of Christ in the midst. Luke chapter number 2 this morning. Let's begin reading at verse number 42. The Word of God says, And when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. All that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Let's read verse 46 once more and then we'll pray. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege, Lord, for the opportunity to be in your house. I appreciate, Lord, and want to thank you for each and every person that is here this morning. Now, Lord, they're not here uh, by accident nor by coincidence. Father, they have been providentially led here. God, you have something this morning from your word for them. So I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would have liberty to speak to hearts. God, that your Son would be glorified in the service this morning. If there's any amongst us that are lost and undone without Christ, show them their need of Calvary. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm very interested in the phrase used in verse number 46. When the Bible designates where Christ was at this moment in his life, it uses a phrase that is found all throughout the New Testament concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And that phrase that we see is that Christ was found in the midst. Now, something you'll find as you read the Word of God, we believe the Word of God to be perfect. And whether we believe that or not, it'd still be perfect. Amen? It's perfect. It's exactly what it ought to be. My King James Bible has no errors in it. You hear a lot of people talk about errors in the King James Bible, but you don't hear a lot of people pointing them out. Isn't that interesting? Amen? There are difficulties in the King James Bible. There's difficulties in any book. But there are no errors in the Word of God. It's absolutely perfect and preserved. And so everything in there is on purpose. The Bible doesn't say anything for no reason at all. What it says, it says with distinct purpose and design. And all through the life of Christ, you'll find time and time again, when the Bible says where he's at, it again and again says he's in the midst of different situations. Now, you may say, well, preacher, that's coincidental. Well, I don't believe my Bible's coincidental, so I believe it's on purpose. And I believe the Word of God is teaching us something about the person and the character of the Son of God you'll find that this idea of the nearness or the closeness of God in the flesh is something unique to Bible Christianity. In fact, in every other quote, and I don't even like to call Christianity a religion. It's not a religion. It's a reality and a relationship. But you know what I mean when I say this. Every other religion in the world, by comparison, always presents God at being at a distance. In fact, let me just point out uh, three of them very quickly, three of the biggest religions, quote-unquote, in this world. In Islam, boy, we're hearing a lot about Islam nowadays, aren't we? 
Who would have ever thought some of you 40 or 50 years ago, you'd never imagine you'd be hearing uh, as much about Islam and Muslims as you are today. I, I detest the term uh, extreme or radical Islam. You say, well, preacher, is that because you're so politically correct? No, it's because I don't think it's radical Islam that is violent. I think all Islam is violent. Anybody that's a true adherent to the principles and teachings of the Koran, you say, well, preacher, what do you know? I've got a co- I'll show you a copy where it says that you're to take vengeance upon the infidels. You, you know what the word infidel means to a Muslim, don't you? That means you and me. That's what that word inf- infidel means. It means a Jew. It means a Christian. It means a Westerner. It means anybody other than a staunch adherent to Islam. And sometimes that word infidel to a Muslim even means other Muslims. Amen? So uh, in Islam, we're hearing a lot about it today. That was free. That wasn't even part of the message. Amen? Uh, but we're hearing a lot about Islam today. How does Islam present their God? Well, I don't know if you know. You know, you'll get a kick studying other religions sometimes just because of the foolishness of them. Uh, the uh, Quran teaches that Allah himself lives upon the moon. You'd think he'd pick a better place to live, amen? But he, he picked the moon and he dwells upon the moon. Speaks only to his people through prophets. There's no one-on-one relationship between the Mohammedan and his God. Allah is a distant God. What about Hindu? We don't even realize because Hinduism, though it is just as damning a religion, is not as violent a religion historically as Islam. We don't hear much uh, about Hinduism, but uh, it's one of the major world religions, literally millions upon millions, tens, hundreds of millions of adherents uh, to the Hindu religion. Well, in Hindu, they they are what we call polytheistic. They don't believe in one God. Uh, We do believe in one God, but we're also Trinitarians, meaning we believe in one God and three persons. That's no contradiction, by the way. We have a limit to our finite understanding of the the nature of the Trinity. There is no uh, uh, no natural example of the Trinity in perfection. Uh, We have no means. Oh, there are shadows of it. Man is a triune being. We have body, soul, and spirit. Uh, Our entire body is comprised of threes. You look at your hand and you've got a thumb and a palm and fingers and uh, so on and so forth. But there's nothing we can really point to in nature to say this is exactly what the Trinity is like. So though we're Trinitarians, we're also monotheistic. We believe there is one Lord, one God, one faith, one baptism, as the Word of God teaches. The Hindu religion is not this way. They have some 330 million gods. And you'll find of these approximately 330 million gods that not a one of them is a god you can have a personal relationship with. They worship through the offering of things to sacrifices. They worship uh, through the giving of money to temples. But they know nothing of true worship or true relationship. Well, what about, let's just take a hit at uh, Roman Catholicism. What does Roman Catholicism teach? Well, some would say, well, Catholicism is Christianity. It's not Bible Christianity. You say, well, does that mean that no Catholics are saved? There may be some Catholics that are saved. I hope there are Catholics that are saved. But if they truly believe what the Catholic Church teaches, they're not saved. Because the Catholic Church teaches that salvation lies in the church. The Word of God teaches us that by grace are ye saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That we're not uh, cleansed through our own works, but through the washing of regeneration. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can be saved. You say, are there saved Catholics, preacher? If there are, they got saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in Him and Him alone. That's the only way 
to be saved. Roman Catholicism presents to us a God that is distant as well, for there must be a barrier, a barrier, a barrier. That barrier is the priesthood. You can't speak directly to God. You can uh, murmur and utter prayers to saints or to the Virgin Mary. You can uh, attempt to pray to God. But if you're to have any relationship with God, the Roman Catholics teach us, it must be through the Roman Catholic priest and through the church. What I'm saying is this. Bible Christianity presents to us the only foundational premise of a personal God. A God that is interested and involved in the daily lives of those that have put their faith in Him. You see, when I see Jesus Christ, He's not on the moon. He's not at a distance. He's not on the other side of a human priest. When I see Jesus Christ, I see Him in the midst. Let me show you a few passages this morning that illustrate this thought. As we've read in Luke chapter number 2, and I want us to notice again in verse 46, the Bible says, And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. I'd say first off that Christ is in the midst of the seeking people. Now, you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? And I want to be very careful with my language here because there's what's called seeker-friendly Christianity today, and I don't want to in any way cast my lot in with that crowd. What I mean this morning is we have the only, and I understand there's only one God, but I mean in the spectrum of uh, invented religions, us having the only true religion, us being the adherence to the one true God, I'm telling you that Jesus Christ, when those that are genuinely seeking to have an understanding Understanding of who God is, He'll come to them and reveal Himself to them. That's an astonishing thing. On we could go through Old Testament examples, and time would literally fail us to try to exhaust the topic. But can I give you one? There's a man that the Bible calls a Syrian ready to perish by the name of Abraham. Abraham dwelt in pagan darkness. Abraham dwelt in a land that knew nothing of the true God, but God understood that within the heart of Abraham was a willingness to li- a willingness to listen to the voice of God if God would speak to him. It was a very unlikely thing for Abraham to come to know the true God. I mean, what an unlikely thing for this Syrian ready to perish, for this man dwelling in heathen and pagan darkness, to ever have a knowledge of who the true God was. But there in the midst of that darkness, like a ray of sunshine breaking through, the voice of God speaks to Abraham with this simple commandment, Abraham, I want you to step out in faith and I want you to follow my word. And upon that prompted command, Abraham steps out and steps into a true knowledge of who God is. Is. I'm aware much has changed since Abraham. I'm aware for our Bible students that much dispensationally has changed since the time of Abraham. But I'm still of the firm belief that God, through His Word, will speak to the heart of... You know, we, we get so tied up sometimes worrying about the words that a person prayed as they asked Christ to save them, or about this little pet doctrine that they've got mixed up on, or about this little technicality uh, that they are cloudy and confused upon. I'm not dismissing 
dismissing the importance of doctrine. I'm not dismissing the importance of a sinner knowing what the gospel says. But I'm merely saying this. I'm sure as a ten-year-old boy that I didn't pray all the words right. I'm sure they wouldn't take my prayer and print it in books and distribute it for the enjoyable reading of Christians everywhere. But I had a heart that knew the gospel and cried out to the Son of God for redemption and forgiveness. And He saved me because He knew my heart. It is almost without fail. Every time I've led someone to the Lord, I've come to the point where I've said, Now, do you want to pray and ask the Lord to save you? I never say, pray, and ask. I ask them, do you want to? If a person doesn't want to be saved, they're not going to get saved. You can force them through a prayer, but they're not going to get saved. But I come to that point and I say, do you want to pray? Almost without fail, almost everyone I've ever led to the Lord has looked at me and said, What do I say? Or I don't know how. I always tell them the same thing. You know how to talk and how to have a conversation. I tell them we've sat here talking back and forth. God has ears to hear. You just open your heart to Him and you ask it the best that you know how. I'm saying that God, that Christ is in the midst of those that are seeking Him. Not those that are just seeking questions without answers. Not those that are merely seeking men's approval or or, or the trappings of religion. But those that are genuinely seeking knowledge of the true God of heaven. Those that genuinely want to know His Son, Jesus Christ. I believe He's in the midst. I don't believe, by the way, that just seeking means salvation. don't Don't misunderstand me this morning. There's plenty of people that are seeking, that'll die seeking because they've never met the Son of God. They've never surrendered themselves. They've never asked Christ to forgive them and save them. I'm not implying that if a person wants to be saved, it means they're saved. But I am saying this, that if a person wants to be saved and is genuinely willing to be saved, I believe that Christ will speak to their heart so that they can be saved if they would choose to be saved. I see that he's in the midst of the seeking. Turn with me to John chapter number 19. John chapter number 19 this morning. And I want to read a couple verses to you. John chapter number 19. Most of you know exactly where we're going. I see that Christ is in the midst of the seeking. But look with me at John 19, verse number 16. The Word of God says, Then delivered He Him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led Him away. And He, bearing His cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. I see that Jesus is in the midst of the seeking, but I see that Jesus is in the midst of the sinners. It cannot be overemphasized the truth and the importance of what we have just read. The the earth foundational shattering truth of what we've just read. Do you see him hanging there? Here he is, perfection manifest. You understand that? Sinlessness incarnate. And there he is, placed upon the cross and made to be sin for you and I. Oh, how vastly different this is from the false gods of this world that would keep at a distance those that need them most, that would keep at a distance those that are hurting And those that are suffering. Well, I'm not downplaying the holiness of God. I'm not downplaying that without Calvary, there would be a distance between us and God. But God loved mankind so much 
that he would bridge that distance through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Oh, the Bible says it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. The Bible tells us that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. The Bible tells me that when I was lost and undone, with no means, with no way of redeeming or saving myself, when I was the farthest thing that a holy God should ever pay attention to, when I was the very opposite of all that God treasured and all that God adored, God took all that He treasured and all that He adored and gave it up for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I'm thankful we've got a God that loves sinners and comes to sinners. You hear occasionally. You don't hear it very often. You know, the problem most of the time in the world that we live in today is not that people think they're too sinful. Most of the time it's that people don't think they're sinful enough. But occasionally you'll hear someone say this. He could never save me. I'm too bad. Oh, friend, you're just the one he's come looking for. People don't go to hell because they're bad. They go to hell because they think they're good. People don't go to heaven because they're good. People go to heaven because they admit that they were bad. Come to Christ to save them and redeem them. That's the great paradox of the matter. Is that you look in hell, you'll find only good people. You look in heaven, you'll find only bad people. You see, it's those that acknowledge their need of Christ's salvation and are willing to be saved. It's only those that are ever going to be saved. There's plenty of people that died and went to hell thinking they were just good enough to get to heaven. But I'm thankful for those that would say, I'm, I'm too bad, I'm too sinful, I'm too vile, I'm too filthy. God could never save me. That time and time again, the Word of God is clear. That He, that, oh, I like this. In the Gospels, this charge was laid against Him. That He receiveth sinful men. One of the greatest things you'll ever study is the Gospel according to the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. All through the Gospels, you'll find times when they made statements of ridicule against him. But oh, what profound truth was contained in them. That was meant as a statement of ridicule. They said that this man receiveth sinful men. They thought they were uh, smearing his name. They thought they were tarnishing his reputation. Oh, what a picture of the true purpose of him coming into this world. For the Son of Man has come not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And he's come to seek and to that which was lost. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for the wicked and the vile and the unrighteous. You say, preacher, I'm too wicked. You're just the person he's looking for this morning. Preacher, I'm too sinful. Preacher, I'm the worst sinner in the world. Well, there's a man that's going to argue with you about that. A very, very moral man by the name of Paul who made this statement concerning himself. He said, He came into the world, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's what Paul said. He said, you can't have that title of the worst sinner. I've already got that title. You can't have that title of the most wicked. I've already got that title. But he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save me, to save you this morning. We see that he's in the midst of sinners I want you to turn over one chapter to chapter number 20. Chapter number 20. What does it mean after we get saved? Does God leave us? After we get saved, is that the end of it? Does He approach unto us that He might redeem us and then retreat 
into the heavens to leave us alone in this earthly journey. It's the day of Sunday in John chapter number 20. Folks would fuss and argue about it, but I believe that's what the first day of the week means. <laughs> says then, verse number 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. I'd propose to you that not only is Christ in the midst of the seeking and in the midst of the sinners, but in John chapter number 20, we see Christ in the midst of the sorrowing. We'll never be able to grasp what it must have been like during that three days and three nights. We'll never be able to grasp what it must have been like to feel as though your entire world had shattered in such a way as they must have felt. Oh, we're so judgmental of the disciples. And I am. I'm as bad as anyone. We wouldn't have done it that way. We wouldn't have messed up like they did. But just imagine for a moment this man that you've believed to be the Son of God. This man in whom you've vested all your hopes and all of your dreams. Not just the dreams of you, but the dreams of your family. Not just the dreams of your family, but the dreams of a nation. Not just the dreams of a nation, but the dreams of the entire world are wrapped up in this person named Jesus Christ. He is the only hope. He is the only means. And you've followed Him and you've seen Him. You've seen Him. You know, there's no doubt in your mind. You've seen Him. You've seen Him raise up those that couldn't walk with your own eyes. You've seen Him and He's loosed the tongues that couldn't speak. He's opened the ears that couldn't hear. You've seen Him give light to eyes that were dwelling in darkness. You've seen Him take people by the hand and raise them from death. You know you've held the hands that broke the bread that fed 5,000. You, like John, have laid your head upon the chest of the one from whose bosom creation was birthed. You know who he is. But all of a sudden, his life doesn't end with a crown. It ends with a cross. And you don't know where you're at anymore. Well, they are gathered in that upper room in fear for their lives with the door locked. They huddle. And they fear, and I don't know what they did. They probably wept. They probably prayed. But there in the midst of that room, all of a sudden, a heavenly visage floats into the room. All of a sudden, a face that they had thought was gone forever is smiling into theirs. And the Son of God stands there, and He says, Peace be unto you. You see, we've not got a God that forsakes us in the midst of our sorrowing. We've not got a God that tucks tail and runs when things get difficult. But we have the kind of Savior that in the midst of our heartache, in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our frustration, can drift into a situation, show His face, and give peace unto us. You know, I find this interesting. It says that he showed him his hands and showed him his sides. It says when the disciples saw that, they were glad when they saw the Lord. 
That's interesting, isn't it? Because you see, they identified his suffering with his power and his compassion. When they saw the nail prints, when they saw the print from the spear, they said, this is the one that cared for me. This is the one that loves me. And in the same way, in the midst of our sorrowing, if only we'll remember him who was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. If only we'll consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, then we'll find the boldness to come forth unto the throne of grace and obtain help in a time of need. You say, preacher, just, just lay it on the bottom where I can get to it. When you're hurting, when you're suffering, you just remember that there was one that bore all your suffering and bore all your hurting. He's not at a distance from you, but He's nigh unto you. He's with you. You remember when He left this world, when His earthly body, and He left this world, He said, I send you another comforter. And through the Holy Spirit, we have the express and experiential person of the Lord Jesus Christ within us. He's called the Spirit of Christ, isn't He? I'm aware that He's God. I'm aware that the Holy Ghost is just as much God as the Son or the Father. But I'm also aware that He's the Spirit of Christ. He is that comforter. He is that parousia. He is that one that dwells within us to give us consolation and comfort from the God of all comfort. And when you're going through heartache, and when you don't understand, and when you can't make sense of it, just take consolation in this truth that you have one within you that knows what you've been through. You've got one in the throne room that knows what you've been through. And you've got one on the throne that knows what you've been through. We see that he's in the midst of the sorrowing. I want to switch gears for a moment. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew. Chapter number 18. And I want to just say a word about his dwelling in the church. Matthew chapter number 18. We've seen that he's in the midst of the seeking. We've seen that he's in the midst of the sinners. We've seen that he's in the midst of the sorrowing. But in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20 says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. I'd say we have a God that's in the midst of the sanctuary. Now you say, whoa, wait a minute, preacher. It doesn't, that, that, that verse teaches the very opposite, that I don't have to be in a church. Oh, friend, the sanctuary isn't, isn't the brick and the mortar and the studs and the drywall. No, the sanctuary is the church. Over in England, I'll give you this example. Over in England, we've got missionaries in England, the Vandenherks, and they said one of the most startling things that they're seeing is all of the churches are closing down and they're being reopened as pubs, coffee shops, and mosques. You think that Islam is not seeking to be a global religion? Pubs, coffee houses, and mosques. Those were places, many of them, where the gospel had sounded forth. Those were places, many of them, where sinners had, had wept in contrition and called upon the, the, the name which is above every other name that they might be saved. But now they're dens of drinking, dens of, I don't know, coffee house, probably gossiping. I have to think about something wicked to associate with, I don't know. Probably dens of expensive bad coffee, Amen. Get your coffee at Starbucks or something wrong with you. (laughs) 
I just offended half the church. We got too many young people in here to make that joke. Um, and ends of worship to a false god. You see, it's, it's not about the brick and the mortar and the studs and the drywall. The church is where the people of God, those that are blood washed, born again, gather together that they might carry out the great commission, that they might glorify God's Son, Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. The church is the individuals. You see, it's not an organization, it's an organism. It's a body, the Bible calls it. The Bible says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. I think that's both a statement of ecclesiastical structure, and I believe it's a statement of personal uh, approval. I believe what Christ is saying is this, that all it takes, if you're in a place where you don't have anyone else, Oh, I don't mean that the church two blocks down the street don't have your kind of music. And I don't mean that the church two blocks in the other direction, somebody told a lie about you. And I don't mean that the church, uh, you know, three blocks in the other direction, somebody that you had fallen out with goes to. I mean, if you're truly in a place where there are no believers, if you can get out and win one or two, find someone qualified that they might lead it, Christ says, there I will meet with you. There I will meet with you. And can I just simply say this? I'm thankful that this is not a shrine. This is a place of worship. This isn't a shrine for sacraments and pomp and circumstance. Some folks get all twisted up because of we're informal around here, you know. And I mean, I could. I could put on a nicer suit, I guess, and wear one of them handkerchiefs with the spikes and be real refined. And, and that'd be fine, except that's not who I am. And I, I mean, listen, you know, everybody complains about people being hypocrites in the house of God. And I, I, I think that sometimes that's just an excuse, but I think sometimes it's true. And I don't want to contribute to that. I want to be who God made me to be, amen? And not be ashamed of it either. Some folks get twisted up because of how informal we are around here. Let me remind you, this is not a place for for long robes. This is not a place for golden scepters. This is not a place for the wafting of incense smoke. This is a place for God's people to meet with God, that He might speak to their hearts, that He might stir their souls. The house of God is a very practical place. It's not a temple. It's not a shrine. But it's a house that we might meet with God in the midst of it. And I'm thankful that we've got a God that will meet with us. There's a lot of churches around town. God ain't been through their doors in 40 years, and they don't know otherwise. It's been so long since... I mean, if somebody said amen, they'd just fall out on the floor. They wouldn't know what to do. You know, you've got to be careful going down the middle aisle for all the ice that's out in the middle of it. I don't want to have a church like that. I want to have a place where God meets with His people. And by the way, when God meets with His people, there's praise. I was reading old Harold Sattler's sermon. I might even preach it. I don't know. You know, us preachers, we steal all of our stuff anyway. Somewhere about 200 years ago, there was a man that really could study and put together sermons. And ever since then, us preachers just been stealing everything from each other. I was reading Harold Sattler's sermon on the four hallelujahs in Revelation chapter number 19. Let me tell you something. If worship makes you uncomfortable, you're going to have a rough time when we get to heaven. That's a place of worship. 
Oh, you may not worship the way that I do or me the way you do or whatever. I mean, you know, you, you may say hallelujah and I may say amen or whatever. But you know what I found? Most of the time, people that spend all their time talking about how we can all worship in our own way don't worship in any way. That's what I found. Most of the people that say, well, that's just not my way, they don't have any way. And that's why they say it's just not their way. I remember my pastor growing up. I loved him. He is mean. But I loved him. And he was, and sometimes he is smart aleck, but he, somebody told him one time, they said, you know, Brother Bob said, I just don't like the way that you soul win. And he said, well, how do you soul win? They said, I don't. He said, I like my way better. <laughs> Amen. Right? Well, that's how it is with worship. You ask some folks, well, how do you worship? They say, I don't. Well, I like my way better. I'd rather worship at the risk of being a fanatic than be dead. Amen. Well, that's a whole other sermon. I'm just merely saying that Christ is in the midst of his people, in the midst of the sanctuary. He'll meet with his people if they're willing to meet with him. Let me show you one final one. I'm done. I offended the... I offended half the crowd with the worship preaching. I offended the other half with the Starbucks joke. I offended some with Revelation chapter number 5. We have a good time, don't we? Revelation chapter number 5. And I want to read one verse to you. Verse number 6, when you find your way there. John is seeing heaven. Say, so you really believe that? Oh, yes. I really believe that. John seeing a vision of heaven. And he says this, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. I see that Jesus Christ is in the midst of the seeking. He's in the midst of the sinners and of the sorrowing. He's in the midst of the sanctuary. But if I read my Bible right, I see that Jesus Christ is in the midst of the splendors of heaven. You imagine what it must have been like for John. You ever wonder what he was looking for, John? ever wonder when God opened heaven, you ever wonder who and what he was looking for? You know, a lot of times our eyes gravitate towards just certain things. There are certain things that catch our attention and grab our attention. And you can show a picture uh, or, or you can show a, 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 a clip of a movie to ten different people and ask them to point out one thing and they'll point out ten different things. And you wonder almost if John, as he got to heaven, if he, or as he looked within heaven, you wonder if maybe he thought within himself, well, you know, I want to say, see the beauties and splendors of it first. And then maybe he thought, well, I want to see the angelic beings, if there are any. And you think, well, you know, maybe John said, well, I don't just want to see that. I, 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 maybe I, I want to see the place, the throne room where God dwells. And maybe I don't just want to see the throne room, but I want to see him that sits upon the throne. And John, as his eyes dart back and forth between this and that and the other, like an angelic and heavenly glow, he sees something that catches his eye above all others. Oh, he sees the splendor. 
He sees the beauty. He sees the angels. He sees the beasts. He sees the elders. He sees the throne room. He sees the throne. But then at the very heart of what heaven is, in the midst of the throne, John says, I saw a lamb as it had been slain. You see, at the very heart of everything, who did he see but the Lord Jesus Christ? Heaven's about a lot of different things. I know that. You hear some preachers preach, and I guess even the same preachers, depending on the message, and uh, they'll preach about the glorified body we'll have. I'm looking forward to a glorified body. I'm not in bad health. I'm just fat, you know. And I, I don't. if the Lord loves me, my glorified body won't be fat. I can't give you chapter and verse on it, but I think it's in there if I studied hard enough. I'm looking forward to a glorified body. And some of you whose bodies maybe have a mile or two more than mine does, you're really looking forward to a glorified body. Other preachers, when they preach, they'll talk about the end of sorrowing. And certainly we all carry our share, and some of us double shares, triple shares, a hundredfold of the sorrowings of this world. And we look forward to what it'll be like to not have to sorrow anymore. You hear some folks, and they look forward to seeing lost loved ones. Not lost loved ones, but loved ones that they lost on this earth. And they look forward to seeing those that they've, that they've lost in this walk of life. Those that they miss. Those that they cherish. And let me say this. Well, I won't say that. I've only got a few left I haven't offended. Um, I look forward to seeing those that I love and care about. I've got a few. I mean, I'm young. You know, I, I've got, I've still got, we've still got both sets of parents. Fortunately, and we've got <laughs> I've got some grandparents that are on the other side. I'm looking forward to seeing them. Amen. Some of you have a spouse that you're looking forward to seeing. Some of you have children that you're looking forward to seeing. We have a little one that the Lord took before he ever got here. We're going to get to see him. Some preachers, when the, boy, that brought it down, didn't it? Some preachers, when they preach, they preach about the gold and the mansions. But you see, what does the Bible preach to us about about heaven? What does the Bible preach to us about about heaven? Over and over again, the Bible, every time that a man saw heaven, he saw Jesus. Every time that he saw heaven, he saw Jesus Christ. It wasn't about the gold. It wasn't about the mansions. It wasn't about the loved ones. Every time that a man sees heaven in the Word of God, he's always focused on the Son of God. You see, it wouldn't be heaven, even if it had all those other things. If it didn't have Jesus Christ, it wouldn't be heaven. It could have all those things, but it wouldn't be heaven without Him. He's at the very heart and centerpiece of the promises of God. He's at the very heart and center of all that God could give us. The Bible talks about our inheritance in Christ Jesus. But did you ever stop to consider that our inheritance in Christ Jesus is the inheritance of Christ Jesus? The greatest thing that God could and ever has given us is not redemption. It's His Son. Amen? The redemption comes with His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son. It doesn't say he that hath life has the Son. He that hath the Son hath life. Here's the question I have for you this morning. Do you know you're going to that place? I know that I am. 
Not because I'm a preacher. If anything, that'd work against me. Not because I'm a Baptist. Again, probably work against me. Not because I'm a good person, because I'm not. The only reason that I know that I'm going to heaven is because in the very depth of my heart, Jesus is in the midst. I know that I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I didn't pay any money, for I couldn't pay my debt. I didn't do any good works, for my righteousness is as filthy rags. But I did come contrite as a sinner to the foot of Calvary. I came as a broken man and said, Lord, do that which I cannot do for myself. Save me according to your word. And you know what he did? He saved me according to his word. If you're lost without Christ this morning, you don't have to leave here in that shape. Right now, you say, I'd love to meet him. Well, guess what? He's in the midst, and you can. If you'll allow someone to take a Bible and show you how to be saved, we can show you from the Word of God what God says about it. If you'll call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Romans says, Thou shalt be saved.